God sent the prophet Isaiah to King Hezekiah. Ask him about something that had been taking place, and he said, what have they seen in thy house? That's a good question. We think of Hezekiah as a good king. There weren't a lot of them that were good. He passed through four great crises in his life, and being king, I imagine he was confronted with a, a number of problems every day. But there were four great crises. One was the crises of choice, the crisis of choice. His father he has was one of the worst. And so he had to decide whether he should continue in the line that his father was directing the nation of Israel, or Judah rather, or should he change and go back to God's way? Ahaz had brought an altar, a pattern for an altar from Assyria, from idolaters, had shut down the temple and set up this other type of altar and many other things that were not in accord with God's will. So he had to pass through that. Hezekiah made the right choice, restored the temple and all that was involved in worshiping God properly, destroyed the things that were wrong. Then he had the crisis of invasion. Hezekiah became the king six years after Samaria fell to the Assyrians. Sennacherib had continued to come on down. Well, wait a minute, I'm getting Sennacherib a little bit ahead of myself here. That was in 701, Sennacherib came around. It was uh, Shalmaneser V, Sargon II, who took Samaria, working successively. And then they came on down into Judah and took this Judean city and that one, and then they encircled Jerusalem. Rabshakeh, the one of the officials from the king of Assyria, sent a letter to King Hezekiah, demanding that they surrender. Hezekiah took the letter into the house of God, opened it up and laid it there before God and began praying. And God answered his prayer, prayers of Isaiah and others. He sent an angel. And one night, 185,000 of the Assyrian army soldiers were killed. The next day when Sennacherib uh, arose and found that his army was all gone, he went on back home. And then there was the crisis of illness or sickness. God said, Isaiah, go and tell Hezekiah that he needs to straighten up his house because he's going to die and not live. And as soon as he received that message, he began praying to God. And he began weeping and crying. And before Isaiah got through the middle of the court or the middle of the community in Jerusalem, God sent a message to him. He said, go back and tell Hezekiah that I have seen his tears, I have heard his prayers, and he's not going to die. Answering his prayers, I'm going to add 15 years to his life. And so Hezekiah passed through a third crisis. As a result of the getting well, there was a delegation sent from Babylon. Babylon hadn't grown up to be a great empire at that time. Assyria was the world empire, but they were going to be replaced by the Babylonians. <clears throat> and so when they came to Hezekiah to bring the congratulations from the king, he showed them all around. And God was displeased with that. And God sent Isaiah again to Hezekiah, and that's when Hezekiah asked the question, What 
have they seen in thy house? Because he knew it was out of a sense of pride that Hezekiah had shown them all of the treasures. He says, there's not one thing in my house that I've not shown them. And then Isaiah, speaking for God, said, all the treasure that you've shown these people, they're going to take off. They're going to carry away, and they're going to carry also thy sons, and all who are born of thee, and they're going, to, they're going to become eunuchs, servants in Babylon. And that came to pass. Hezekiah passed through three of his crises well, but on the fourth one, the crisis, uh, the crisis of prosperity and of pride, he didn't seem to make it so well. And that's why he was condemned by God to Isaiah. But the question that Isaiah put to Hezekiah is a question that we could put to ourselves. What have they seen in thy house? Is there anything in our home, as Christian homes, that ought not to be there? Have people who visit us, our neighbors, our friends, our kinfolk, other Christians, whoever, have they seen something in our house that ought not to be there? What have they seen in thy house? For example, have they seen a scriptural recognition of the role of everyone in the family, of a Christian home, in thy house? The place that God has given the man, the father, the husband, the wife, the mother, as parents and the children. In Colossians 3, let me read a few verses, where we have this address to the father, the husband, the wife, the children, and to the father as a parent. Let me read beginning at Colossians 3, 18 through 21. Wives, be in subjection to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That's to the wives. Have they seen the wives in subjection to their husbands in thy house? Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Have they seen in thy house you husbands? Loving your wives? Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. Have they seen our children, you children, Obeying your parents in all things. Fathers, provoke not your children, that they be not discouraged. And so we find each one being addressed. We can turn to Ephesians 6 and other places where we find the members of a Christian home being given certain responsibilities. The husband is given the responsibility of being the, the leader he is to be the head of the family. And the wife is to be in subjection to him as well as the rest of the family. He is to, as in that role, to love his wife. He is to make a living, provide the security of the home. He is to train up the children in the way they are to go. They are to be trained and taught uh, all kinds of authority. These are just some of the responsibilities that fall upon the Christian husband and father. You may have seen 
My Fair Lady, Rex Harrison and uh, Audrey Hepburn. Well, Rex Harrison, he's Professor Higgins, and he is a confirmed bachelor. One of my favorite songs in it is, Why Can't Women Be More Like Men? And he turns to his colleague and says, Now, are you offended when I don't remember your birthday or bring you a gift? He says, No. He says, Well, there you are. Why can't women be more like men? Well, God has answered that question. Laverne tells me what the answer is. <laughs> He's made us different. We're made physically different. We're made emotionally different. And because of that difference, we all have our own roles, our own places in the family, and certainly in the Christian family. The wife is to be in subjection to her husband, submissive to him. In fact, Paul says in Titus 2 and verse 5 that uh, if that's not carried out, then that's blasphemy. Let me read where the older women are to teach the younger women certain things. Train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sober-minded, chaste, workers at home, kind, being in subjection to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Well, the Living Bible puts it this way, so that the Christian faith can't be spoken against by those who know them. I mean, here we are professing to be Christians. And folks who may not be Christians sort of have an idea as to what responsibilities we have as a Christian mother, Christian father, and so forth. But if they don't see that being carried out, then that will cause people to blaspheme, that is, speak against the Christian faith. But the woman with her feminine traits is better equipped to be a keeper of the home. In fact, 1 Timothy 5 and 14 in the ASB and the RSB say they're to rule the household. Rule the household. They're to manage their home, NIV, guide the house, or take care of their own homes. Well, they are equipped to do that. And also to be a companion and a help of her husband. The loveliness of her soul. The prayers in her heart. The radiance of her charm. And the work of her hands can transform a hovel into a palace. God has given the woman that great task. Marriage, we all recognize, is a partnership. Everybody has their work, their responsibilities that they are to fulfill. I read about a young bride who didn't want to do housework. And she was shocked by an elderly woman's remark. She said, maybe your husband will hire someone to keep your house for you if you will hire someone to make a living for him. But we all have our own responsibilities. But sometimes they don't see that in homes. Sometimes the wife becomes the domineering partner. And sometimes the, the husband becomes the, the submissive one, yielding to her demands. And they become satisfied in that role. 
But what about the children as they grow up under that kind of examples? Here's a daughter, she grows up and she thinks, well, that's the way mom is, I'll be domineering when I get married. Or our son grows up like his father, he's going to be yielding to the wife. And so they're going to be misfits if they're trying to follow. And they marry someone who's trying to follow God's plan for the family. And then we find that children are to respect parental authority. This is not inbred. It has to be trained or taught in them. Some children learn this early in life some later in life and some never learn it. Learning to be in subjection to the parents. And this is something that the parents have a responsibility of carrying out. Ephesians 6 and 4, Fathers, provoke not your children under wrath, but bring them up or nurture them in the chastening and admonition of the Lord. Parents have a responsibility. A man was visiting in a home, had some business talk with the father and while they were talking in the living room one of the sons was sitting there in front of the television and the television volume was just a little bit too loud and so the father said son turn the television down we can't hardly hear one another son didn't move didn't change probably didn't even hear him so the father gets out of his chair walks over and turns it down goes back to sit down about the time he sits down the son reaches up and turns it back up The father says, son, I turn that down. Turn it down. Son doesn't move. Whether he hears him or not, he doesn't respond. Father gets up. He goes over, turns the volume down, goes back. About the time he sits down, the son reaches up, turns it back up. Third time, he gets up to go over there. He turns it off, the television off. Goes and sits down. About that time, the Son reaches up, turns it back on, turns the volume back up to where he likes it. Well, I think the father missed it there. It would just take one time for some fathers to tell the son, that's it. We, in a way, will teach children long-suffering. But there's a priority over teaching them long-suffering, and that is parental authority. Because when they get out, they're going to have to learn to respect all authority. And that falls upon the parents. Have they seen in thy house? That's the question that Isaiah put to Ezekiah. And the application we're making is the role of each one that God gave him in a Christian family. The husband's the head. The wife is submissive, though she rules the family. The household and the children are obedient. I read this poem, and uh, I hope it'll help you is that has me. The Christian home that we hope everyone will see when they come our way is one where there is affection and there's love. There's an atmosphere of love and affection, consideration, and all that goes together. The title of this is Please Touch Me. I am your baby. Please touch me. Not just when you feel, feed me and diaper me, but stroke my legs, my arms, my back, my head. Hold me close in tenderness that says, I love you. I am your teenager. 
please touch me. I need to feel a fond love coming through your hands, your arms. I need to see it in your eyes, hear it in your voice, even when we disagree. Some of me is still a child. Please touch me. I am a child with a family of my own. Please put your arms around me. Mother, father, when my heart aches, with heartaches you have known, now that I am a parent, I see you differently and love you more. When you embrace your grandchildren, don't forget me. I am your aging parent. Please touch me the way my mother did when I was young. My hair is coarse and gray, but please stroke it. My hand is withered, but hold it. Embrace my tiring body. I need your strength. Please touch me. Have they seen that kind of affection in thy house? And have they seen a good influence in thy house? A 16-year-old boy quit attending church services. And his explanation was, my parents have attended church for 40 years, and it has not done much for them. So why should I continue? Well, the influence of that house was not good. We have a Bible example of a mother's influence affecting her child and then in turn later her grandchild. In 2 Timothy 1 and 5, Paul says, Having been reminded of your unfeigned faith that dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice or Eunice, and I am persuaded in thee also. Paul is writing to Timothy. He said, you got your unfeigned faith, that is your sincere, genuine faith, coming first from your grandmother and then from your mother. And I'm persuaded that you have it too. Have they seen that unfeigned faith in our homes? The influence on a child dates back to grandparents and great-grandparents, and maybe, you know, every generation passes on certain traits, certain characteristics. Uh, but each one is to be responsible for his own good influence. We mentioned Ahaz, and then there was Hezekiah, and then there was Manasseh. And I'll never understand how Hezekiah became so good, coming from such an evil father, and having such an evil son. He's sandwiched in between two evil kings, father and son. But each generation, including Hezekiah, was responsible for their own good influence. Christianity is made for the home. And that is to say it is for the individual and the degree to which an individual follows Christ in everyday living will be manifest in the home. 
you probably heard this. Someone said that if you want a neighbor to see what Christ can do for him, show him what Christ has done for you. Is there good influence in thy house? Another question. Have they seen prayer in thy house? Well, now, maybe we ought to change that question because Jesus taught in Matthew 6 and 5 that we're not to pray like the hypocrites who love to stand and to pray in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets to be seen of men. So we're not to stand and pray every time we have a neighbor come into the house or something like that to be seen of men. But the question ought to be, has God seen and heard prayers in thy house? That's what's important. You remember back in about the 60s, uh, a lot of theologians, well, some theologians came along with this idea that God is dead. Some of you may not be old enough, but... Uh, and I think Emory University produced one of the theologians. God is dead. What they meant was that the God that we believe in, the God that's revealed in the Bible, that most people believe in, they said that God doesn't exist. You have to believe the kind of God we come up with. And so they called God dead. Someone asked Brother Marshall Keeble about that time. What he thought about that? Is God dead? He said, that's foolishness. I talked with him this morning. He knew he wasn't dead. He prayed. He was a faithful child of God. And ought we to be the same. Philippians 4 and 6. In nothing be anxious, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passeth all understanding shall guard or keep your hearts and thoughts in Christ Jesus. What about 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 and 18? Pray without ceasing. Have they seen prayer in thy house? In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus to you. That's what the Lord wants us to do. And it's a sad thing to think that too many children have never heard prayer. Not unless they just happen to turn their television set to a channel that picks up a prayer, and they probably won't leave it there. They can't hear prayers in school. And a lot of people out in the world don't even pretend to be a Christian. And so these children grow up without ever hearing a prayer. But surely that should not be said of a Christian home. Have they seen or heard prayer in the home? Have they, been, have they seen Bible study in the house? Or any good literature? It's Proverbs 23 and 7 that says, And as a man thinketh within himself, so is he. Well, when we read literature, that's what we're thinking about. If we're reading the Bible, that's what we should be thinking about. David meditated upon the Word of God day and night. And so if we're thinking about God's Word, that's going to lift us up, is it not? And so we shouldn't allow trashy type of literature in the home as fathers, as mothers. Because as a man and a young man, a daughter, a young woman thinks, so is he. 
The power of literature is lasting. It was Francis Bacon who lived back in about the 16th century. He made the statement, if I might control the literature of the household, I would guarantee the well-being of the church and the state. Well, I don't know if Francis Bacon could do that, but God could. And God doesn't force upon us what he wants us to read, but he's given it to us. He encourages us to do it, and by doing it, we can see the benefits. Have they seen Bible reading in thy house? We've talked about that before, so we'll go on. Have they seen hospitality in thy house? Hospitality is a trait, a characteristic of a Christian home. Paul said in Romans 12 and verse 13, given unto hospitality or pursuing hospitality. And also in 1 Peter 4 9. Let me read you how J.B. Phillips put this. Be hospitable to one another without secretly wishing you hadn't got to be. Now, I don't know why Mr. Phillips put it like that. It's in modern-day language, but we don't talk like that. Be hospitable to one another, which is what the Bible says, but it says without complaining. Be hospitable to one another without murmuring about it. That's the point. And he makes that point, but he says without secretly wishing you hadn't got to be. <laughs> I don't know, it was last week or the week before I was talking about the Israelites. And I was thinking ahead, and so I was winding up that point, and I said that the Israelites did do. <laughs> Laverne told me that doesn't sound like good English. They did do that. <laughs> but uh, Mr. Phillips says, be hospitable to one another without secretly wishing you hadn't got to be. Well, have they seen hospitality in your home? I think the words that are used in the Bible stress the idea of strangers, like Hebrews 13 and 2, or Luke 14, 12 through 14, where Jesus tells us about when you're inviting people in, invite those who are not able to requite you. Don't invite your rich friends, your family, your neighbor, because they're going to say, well, now, we've got to have them back in our home, because they've had us in their home. He says, you invite the people who are blind, those who are lame, uh, those who uh, have this or that, and they can't do it. That's the kind of hospitality Jesus encouraged. Well, let me pass on real hurriedly to one other question. Have they seen social drinking and drunkenness, even drunkenness, in the home? I turn over to Proverbs 23. Let me read a few verses. Twenty-nine through thirty-four. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath complaining? Who hath wounds without cause? You know the answer. Who hath the redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek out mixed wine, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it sparkleth in the cup, 
When it goeth down smoothly, at the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange things, and thy heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast, like on a ship. I mean, it's rocky enough just being on the deck, way up there. Well, he's telling us what that will do to a person. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 and 10, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, that drunkenness will keep us out of the kingdom of God. A report tells us that drinking is learned mostly at home or from adolescent peers. Now, here's where we parents can come in. If we do not drink at home, we're not going to teach our children to drink. We should teach them so they'll understand why they shouldn't drink. They're not drink in front of them to give them the example. It's okay. Mom and dad do it. And what about among their peers, adolescent peers? That means they're still young, adolescents. But they're learning how to drink from them, either at home or uh, from adolescent peers. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, be not deceived. Evil companionships corrupt good morals. And we can see what kind of companions our children are with. Do they drink? That's where they're going to learn it. Drinking is learned mostly at home and from adolescent peers. A son said to his father, I see no harm in taking a drink. And the father held out an acorn and asked, What do you see? And the son said, I see only an acorn. And the wise father continued, Where you see only an acorn, I can see an oak. And where you can see only a drink, I can see a drunkard. There are 350,000 social drinkers who become alcoholics annually in the United States. Annually, that's every year. 350,000 social drinkers become alcoholics every year. And nobody sets out to become an alcoholic, but they come through social drinking. Have they seen social drinking in thy home. Most persons who defend social drinking would not likely affirm, let me give you five things, they would not likely affirm that they can successfully teach others about Jesus while under the influence. And they would not likely affirm that their marriage has been more spiritual minded since alcohol entered it. Nor would they likely affirm that they can wield a better influence on their children with a drink in their hand. They would not likely affirm that they have lost absolutely no fervor for spiritual activities since they began drinking. And they would not likely affirm that when Jesus comes, they would be perfectly willing to meet him with alcohol on their breath. What have they seen in thy house? 
As Christians, we have a responsibility of growing in the image of Christ, of helping each member of the family to grow in the same direction, to grow in the grace of Jesus, in the knowledge of the Lord, and to help rather than to distract, pull us apart, separate us. What have they seen in thy house? If there's anyone here this morning not a Christian, could we encourage you to become a Christian, to become a Christian parent, or Christian child or whatever, whatever your role is. Jesus came to die for our sins. He wants to save you. He wants us to go home to heaven. Are you subject to the gospel invitation? If you are, would you come as together we stand and sing?